Hey everyone, Jim here reminding you to check out some of the links in the show notes to find out how you can help those in need during this uh, difficult time. Uh, And I also really wanted to bring your attention to the new Directors Club Patreon and thank a few people who have all become Patreons recently. Would like to welcome the following new members, Bill, Robert, Jason, George, Keith, Marissa, Thomas, and Jay. And when you become a patron, you, you not only get a free DVD, you get to suggest a director to cover in the future that will be added to a poll. Uh, you get to choose a song for me to cover. And there's more to come, uh, including a contest that I hope will come into fruition because I was just given a great t-shirt for one of the year's best films, The Vast of Night. And I would love to send that your way. So please join Patreon, follow us on Facebook, send us an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com to keep in touch. Looking forward to keeping the show going and certainly hoping Patrick will return. But even if he can, I, I plan to do my absolute best to offer some great future content, including a lot of uh, possible sequel Redux episodes like the one you're about to hear right now. So on with the show. everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am your host, Jim Laskowski. Uh, my co-host, Patrick, is taking time off. Of course, we uh, we do wish him well. Uh, he's got a lot going on right now, but he, he may return. It's uh, kind of up in the air, but uh, we do look forward to his, uh, his appearance in October for when we discuss Lucio Fulci. That'll be that'll be a lot of fun, um, but in the meantime, it's it's mainly just going to be me and a guest. And in this case, uh, a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, a great guy today whose appearance is long overdue. Uh, he's he's been a hardworking Chicago film critic for quite some time, particularly for the uh, for the renowned movie blog Keeping It Real. That's real spelled R E E L. Very clever. <laughs> it's an honor and a pleasure to be talking with the one and only David J. Folly. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to ha- finally have you on. I know we, uh, we 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 briefly talked at the awards dinner, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I mentioned yeah I gotta get you on this on the show here. Uh, who do you want to talk about, man? Who who is, <laughs> who is the director that uh, you respond to that you think deserves um, some more mention? Uh, mm. And uh, you, you came at me with Peter Weir. Yes, Australian film director. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I just, uh, I, 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 I realized, yeah, I've done an episode on Peter Weir, but holy cow, this podcast, even though we're <laughs> like only approaching, you know, 200 episodes, uh, we recorded that Peter Weir episode, uh, close to a decade ago. It's, it's been wow. nine years, which is crazy to think about because we were wow. totally different people. <laughs> and, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where it's like. I even th- I even think Patrick, um, you know, my co-host has said this before: is that like you almost have to 
rewatch movies every three or four years because you've changed. Mm-hmm. You oh know? yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you're going totally to agree. You're going to have a totally different perspective when you see a movie, even one that you love and that you've seen over and over again. If you watch it, um, you know, five years later or whatever, you're, you're gonna, you may have a different take or you may see something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really, really excited to talk Peter Weir. We've, you know, been, we've been good at keeping touch on social media, of course, but I think, uh, yeah, you do, you deserve a lot of kudos for your, for your writing and, uh, your film criticism, of course. But, uh, uh, as we were talking off mic, I, I also really admire you for your transition into, into good health and fitness, which is, you know, something I've struggled with, but, uh, when did, when did, when was the time that you actually started running? Did it sort of, was this something that you just sort of came to the conclusion overnight? I got to start running or did it happen gradually? Um, I mean, I did do a little bit of running in college. Um, mm-hmm. um, and that mainly had to do with, um, uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine who convinced me into, Hey, go running with me. And, uh, she, she happened to be quite attractive. So I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, uh, um, but about my daughter's 13 years old and around the time that she was, um, born the year she was born, I felt like, you know, I, I want to do something, uh, my own physical alteration, uh, you know, and so I signed up for a half marathon and I trained with some friends and, uh, that was, I ran that about maybe three months before she was born. And I, I did, I would do like a 5k here and there or something like that, but I didn't really keep up with it that much. And then my wife ran a marathon, the Chicago marathon in 2009, and that was inspiring. Um, and so, um, I started doing a little bit more 10 K stuff like that. And then, um, <laughs> on Facebook, a friend of mine, um, uh, basically he, he works for the Chicago coalition for the homeless and ah, yes. he put, yeah, he put something out there on Facebook saying, Hey, if you ever thought about running Chicago marathon, um, our team is looking for people to join us. We raise money for the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. And I just thought, well, okay, I always wanted to, you know, a a full marathon is on my bucket list. Plus, this is a good cause. Done. So I signed up. I was surprised. He was surprised. And we went with it. I went with it. And, you know, that was last year when I ran my full marathon. And and training has become... um, you know, of course, as you get as you get older and and you live in this world, you're going to have more stress and anxiety. And I, I think training has really become a, a huge catharsis, or, or running in general has become a huge catharsis for me as far as my mental health. And um, it's been a great outlet. Um, and so I, I just, you know, there are days where you know there might be a day where I take a break during the week, but mm-hmm. typically I'm running about nowadays I'm running about five to six days a week. And, um, it, it ranges anywhere from, you know, three to five miles a day. But, um, you know, we're, I am back in a, tra- a marathon training uh, program, um, now, and the, we don't know what the status of the Chicago marathon is right now. Yeah, I'm sure say. they'll, that's, yeah, I'm sure they'll cancel because Boston canceled, New York just canceled. It would be a wise thing to cancel, but we're we're assuming we're training as if it's happening, and we're trying to raise money uh, just as if it's happening. I know it's a hard time to ask for you know donations right now, but 
people are still donating to a lot of different, you know, organizations. So I figured why not, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, off, off uh, line here, I, I'm, it, it's, a it's something that, uh, didn't come to me necessarily easily, but I think when you just look at something one day at a time and you make these decisions one day at a time, um, it just builds up, you know, it's just, I, you know, I could say the same thing about my film criticism and, and, you know, my, um, approach to, uh, reviewing and, and writing. And, um, if you do something consistently for a long period of time, uh, hopefully you get better, but you also get into this, you know, groove and people will start to recognize you for what you're doing, hopefully. Um, and, and you, they come to expect something, you know, consistently. So, um, that's the thing is like, if you are doing something for a long period of time, hopefully you're passionate about it and it, it helps you, it motivates you to, um, that passion motivates you to continue and you're surrounded by people who are, uh, you know, supporting you and, and, and you could learn from. So that's been my experience, I guess, both in running and my approach to film criticism. Well, that's great that we could find a, a, a parallel there. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, that makes total sense. And, you know, something I, I believe we talked about early on is, um, you know, something I, I've struggled with is just, uh, with food and mm-hmm. learning slowly but surely how to eat better. Uh, but then, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and, and all, <laughs> all of this, uh, it's a lot of emails sent to me saying, you support all your local restaurants. And I want to, <laughs> I wanna, you know, it's like takeout is it's so easy to do. It's just so easy it to is. be like, it is. okay, I really have a craving for this thing. Here it is. Boom. It comes to my right. door. Oh, I know. Yeah, I yeah I discovered Grubhub a little late, but yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've regressed a little in in the midst of like I think I come from a long tradition of stress eaters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I can relate. So yeah, it's 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 I'm I'm slowly getting back into the groove of okay, uh, shop for produce and don't mm-hmm. always just you know go for the easy fix and make your own meals uh, and. You know, I'm certainly I'm certainly good with eating like, um, you know, salmon with a vegetable, and maybe like a baked potato once in a while. But I, mm-hmm. I, I, I've definitely cut back here and there. It's it's, but again, it's something that I'm looking forward to making more consistent. Hopefully, once things get back to normal, and uh, I, I want yeah. I definitely want to include running. I mean, certainly I I worry about like the because I I certainly have a couple of masks that are kind of difficult to breathe through. So I'm wondering. I'm, I'm assuming there's probably better masks for runners. Yeah, we could. Yeah, we could talk about that. You could always pick my brain about that. Okay, um, cool. I, I I I don't run with the mask on all the time, mm-hmm. but there's these there's these things that you just kind of wear on your neck. They're called buffs. Oh, uh, okay. They're called run, running buffs. And if I'm coming up on somebody or I'm, you know, coming up behind somebody or I'm approaching somebody, if I can't move around them, uh, I just flip it up above my mouth and nose. And then as I pass them, I take it off because it is is hard to breathe when you're running (laughs) with a mask on. I mean, unless you're, you know, a trained vigilante, you know, like Spider-Man, well, Spider-Man is not a vigilante, but if you're somebody like, you know, 
somebody who wears a mask and fights crime, I mean, they're, they're used to it. So (laughs) I'm not at that level yet. Um, yeah. yeah, well, a lot is a lot has been happening in the world. Of course, is as mm-hmm. you know, we sort of sift through whatever kind of new normal this is shaping up to be. And you know, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, right now Illinois is reopening a lot more than it probably should, especially since other states down south are surging with cases. So there's still a yeah. general concern and just a lot to process in the midst of of all of this. But uh, the reason why I'm you know, doing this with you tonight is just to, to emphasize the importance of having some kind of escape. Cause I, I do think people seek out podcasts and yes. Okay. We're just two white dudes sitting, <laughs> sitting in front of mics and, you know, being nerdy about films. But I, I still think like that passion and that sort of, uh, you know, refuge that people seek out uh, in the midst of like, all this horrible stuff, you know, coming home and being able to say, Hey, I heard about this movie on a podcast and I'm so glad that I found it that I, because right. like now we can just type in, uh, okay, where's this streaming at? Where's this right. title streaming at? So yeah, it's, it's, well, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up something good. I mean, we, we do need this, um, the arts as a form of, uh, escapism catharsis, but also, what people are listening to right now are two people connecting. Uh, that that is a need right there sure. in this in this time. But uh, we're also connecting about you know something we're passionate about. So um, you know, I, I'm not going to hop on a uh, a political podcast and <laughs> have a gripe session. You know, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about something um, that we can champion together. That we can you know discuss and, and, you know, scour through. And, um, I, even when we talk about films in general, I, if I don't like a film, I usually will talk about it once and then be done. Sure. I, I'm, I'm in general, I do not like to go on and on about how much I don't like a film. I'd rather go on and on about how much I do like a film. No, it's great to put positive energy into the world, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, I definitely yeah. feel bad when I don't like something because I know how many people are involved with making art and it's, it's one of those things where, okay, maybe it didn't connect with me, but right. it very much could connect with somebody else. I, I certainly get that, imp- I guess that impression with Rob Zombie, who is a filmmaker that I know a mm. lot of people do enjoy and respect and admire. And I'm like, I don't really get it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, I certainly wanted to bring up a couple of things that uh, I didn't get to address lately regarding the passing of uh, a couple of directors. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. One whose work I think might be stronger overall, but the other certainly made a, a cultural impact. We lost um, a couple of filmmakers, one far too young. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard to talk about just because I, I, I've heard, um, you know, Mark Maron's podcast and, right. you know, he was partners with, uh, the great Lynn Shelton. Right. And she's someone whose work I really, really enjoyed, especially mm-hmm. when I, w- once I saw the film hump day, which right. I, I, I really adored. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I just felt like it sort of summed up kind of the strengths of that character driven sort of mumblecore vibe that was really endearing. And, uh, most recently, you know, she put out a terrific film that I believed played the Chicago Critics Film Festival, 
which also co-starred Mark Maron. And uh, he gave one of the best monologues in any movie that year, in my opinion, with, uh, oh my gosh, uh, oh, Sword, Sword of Trust. Sword, Sword of, of Trust. Trust, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great, great, great cast there. Absolutely, and it's yeah, just... Yeah, um, Michaela Watkins, Jillian Bell. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, it was a really, really funny and short and sweet little, you know, character-driven comedy that... Uh, kind of reminded me a little bit of the early work of like David O. Russell in terms of getting kind of screwball-y at times. Mm, mm, but, okay. uh, yeah, no, I just think Lynn Shelton was, was, was a treasure in every way. And it's just like, ah, oh, I mean, it just, it, it, it goes to show um, just how fragile life can be and, and you can be gone in an instance. And it's For not, sure. it wasn't even, you know, the virus, it was just some sort of rare disease that she had, but yeah, uh, it's just it's it was very tragic, and I really truly want to go back and take a look at all of her work because there's still a couple of that I haven't seen. But um, uh, I'm assuming I, you were a fan. Oh yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think I came came across her first on some of her uh, acting work, and then um, of course you know Hump Day and touchy feely and especially your sister's sister. I really oh, like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, one too. Yeah. Yeah. She did a good job with that, but man, it's just, it's sad because it's, it's one of those talents that you just feel like you're going to, you're going to get, you know, get to see her improving and, and improving upon herself and expanding thoughts and themes, um, in her work. Um, there's, but you're right. There's definitely some movies I want to catch up on. Um, that one with uh, Edie Falco, yeah. Outside In. Yeah, I, I, I haven't see that seen too. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and Little Fires Everywhere. I heard is really good. Um, oh yeah, she had a hand in that for sure, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was pretty rough hearing uh, Marin yeah. share about the whole thing. It's just like, oh, jeez, I. I, I I don't think I even finished the episode. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> I know. I, 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 yeah. I was, I was really, I mean, if, on one hand, it's like how brave and how beautiful mm-hmm. of him to do that. But at the same time, it's yeah. just, it's just really hard to be confronted with a sudden loss. And if you've experienced sudden loss too, it, it just taps into yeah. that feeling that you, you, you know, and it's, it's hard to like, you know, sit with that for a couple hours, but you know, it is. It's 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 still great to hear her really loving interview that she did with him. Um, it was good. Yeah, it was good to. I mean, it almost started out like a eulogy, but then yeah. to have that go back and have that interview air, it was good to. It's good to hear her voice. And, you know, even though it's like it's not somebody I knew, she didn't know me, but it was. It's when you miss somebody uh, because you know they're now gone and you're never going to be able to see their work again. It's, it's just kind of nice to hear them. Yeah. And thankfully she, she, you know, had a, had a nice body of work that we can go back on and, and enjoy time and time again. For uh, sure. Yeah. And, and the other is, uh, Joel Schumacher who, you know, <laughs> I think, I think like a lot of people on social media and I, again, I don't want to get, I don't want to put out too much negative energy, but you know, I'm, I'm really out there. <laughs> it's it's out there for sure. Like I mean, I'm, I will admit that I'm not the biggest fan of some of his filmography, but mm-hmm. he's still someone I I wouldn't mind covering on the show because I think even some of his failures have interesting things going on 
within them, including well, he, just yeah. a, a style that was all his own. Well, even the variety of his work. I mean, he kind of dabbled and tried pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, I grew up on his work. I mean, Lost Boys, come on. I mean, I, I was in high school and that was just, come on, you know. And of yeah. course, you know, the Brad Pack, St. Almost Fire. Um, can't say I, I ever got around to watching DC Cab, but I always knew that, oh, that's the Mr. <laughs> T movie. Um, you just set in Chicago. Yeah. I know. It's like, and I never got around to Incredible Shrinking Woman, so that would be interesting to see. But um, yeah. yeah, Flatliners. I mean, he goes from Flatliners, which is kind of sci-fi, and then Dying Young. You know, it's like, gosh, <laughs> wow, okay, heavy. But, you know, Falling Down. Oh, um, that's, that's probably the, my favorite still. Yeah, yeah. And the Grisham, the two Grisham movies, The, the Client, Time to Kill. Sure. Uh, Obviously, the two Batman movies. Um, I tried the other night. I tried watching. Well, I didn't. Not that I would set out to watch the whole thing, but I put on Batman Forever because it's on HBO Max, and I just because I couldn't remember how the movie opened. And you know, sometimes you just you're curious, like how does that open again? So um, I watched it. and I was like, oh man, it, I don't know if you remember how it opened, but it's pretty much just like it's pretty much like those crotch shots of <laughs> Val Kilmer putting on the suit and everything and, and grabbing his gear. And it's like, okay, we're going right into it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's, and it is kind of funny because when Schumacher came on the Batman movies, you know, everybody made fun of, you know, the, the, the costume and, and the nipples and everything in the cod piece and, and people forget. And I don't know how much, I never watched the film with his commentary, but I never, I don't know how much involved he was in the costume, but, but he started out as kind of like a fashion guy in mm-hmm. film. And, yeah. and so it's no surprise that the film opens with these, you know, quick cut edits to all these different, you know, pieces to, you know, Kilmer's Batman. Yeah, he kind of fetishized <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> and I think and that's, that's, fine. That's, that's entertaining in of itself. You know, even if yeah. the movie isn't great, there are moments yeah. or there are things or there are certainly in Batman and Robin some uh, some really ridiculous mm-hmm. dialogue. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh for sure. You know, you could you can smile at and enjoy. I you know, uh, I, there's certainly again some titles that like like Eight Millimeter is one of those movies I know I've seen, but I have no memory of really if it's, mm-hmm. you know, strong or not. Like some people yeah. think it's pretty good. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I know I've seen that. How come I don't remember much of it? But I think it's, yeah. uh, that's just, that's with age too. I, I, there's been some movies late, lately that I'm like, Oh crap. I just realized I, I logged this on letterbox, but I actually have no memory of actually. Seeing right. it. And you wonder if it's just your age or if it's the movie's not memorable, but that's true. You know, that's, that's a very combination. Well yeah, yeah. Now, are there um, Schumacher films that you are kind of curious about that you just never got around to seeing? Or, well, I think there's there's certainly a couple. Um, well, I, I I know I was a, I was a fan of Phone Booth for sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's um, there was Veronica Guerin with because uh, I'll watch anything with Kate Blanchett. That's certainly of course one yeah. that was a blind spot. I never saw that. Yeah. And Cousins is one that came up with Colin and Eric when we do our yearly right. retrospectives and they sort of sing mm-hmm. the praises of that one and I've I know that's on Amazon Prime so that's now added to my queue and I'm going to watch it sooner than later for sure. Right. Cuz it's supposed to be a really sweet romantic comedy. Um and uh it's just something that for some reason I just never never came across it before but 
uh, yeah, I mean, again, kind of inconsistent, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, I just kept hearing stories about how personable and amicable and mm-hmm. kind of down to earth he was, especially as an interview subject that, um, you know, I, I think he should be celebrated. And I think go back and, you know, even if you find something like the lost boys, a little dated or cheesy or whatever, there's, there's just elements of style that we'd never mm-hmm. seen before that really jumped out and sort of leapt, you know, and, and called attention to itself, but in a way that I think was really interesting. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, it's sad, but at the same time, he's certainly left quite a number of films that I think oh, people will sure. go back to. Something like yeah, Falling I mean, Down, I think, actually plays like a precursor to something like Fight Club, really. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, his, his work in the 90s is pretty insane, because he had Falling Down in 93, The Client in 94, Batman Forever in 95, Time to Kill in 96, Batman Robin in 97, how do you, <laughs> when do you sleep? You know, right? it's like, this, that's crazy. You know, and he did a lot of music videos too for like Lenny Kravitz and Excess. But it's just, um, that whole period was just like, wow, this guy was not, not resting here. Um, yeah, I'm going, looking back, I mean, he, I've, I've always been interested in a Joel Schumacher film. You know, I've, I've, I'm always interested to see what he's doing, what he's doing next. There's definitely, uh, the reason I asked is that there's definitely movies like um, when the Phantom of the Opera came out, I really had no interest in it. In it, And I think, you know, I should have probably at least given it a chance because it's a Schumacher film. Um, so I wouldn't mind going back to that. But then it was interesting. Like after that, there was that Jim Carrey horror movie, The Number 23. Ooh, that was bad. And that was kind of yeah, bad. <laughs> I, I heard that was really bad. Um, and then Blood Creek with like Henry Cavill and... and Michael Fassbender, Dominic Purcell, it's just like a straight up another horror movie. Oh, weird. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, I just yeah. looked this one up and I, I'll see anything with Michael Fassbender. So. Right, right. So I'm kind of curious about that because, you know, I think it was, I think I saw like children say something on Twitter or something that, that Schumacher's films were um, all kind of dark, except for maybe Cousins. Um, so, you know, how do you choose? Do you have to be in a certain mood? Um, yeah, you never know. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm curious to see like, you know, how dark, you know, some of those movies go like, you know, as far as horror goes, but, uh, I think it's unfortunate that of the movies I've seen of his, his last movie that came out, um, was probably my least favorite. I thought it was awful. Uh, 2001's Trespass with the Nicole Kidman and Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I never saw that one just because of the reviews it was getting. Mm, it was bad, really yeah, bad. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. When you have that cast, and uh, you know, I, I don't. I, I guess maybe after that, he just said, "Yeah, maybe it's time for me to hang my hat," because I don't think he yeah. did a whole lot after that. Not, not much. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, yeah. I mean, it's. I'm glad again. He had a, a really interesting career, uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'd be curious to like go back and watch some videos of him being interviewed and just listening. To, yeah, there's some commentaries out there that he's done. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're great because he just sounds mm-hmm. like a really cool and very nice yeah. uh, man. So rest in peace, Definitely. Joel Schumacher. And uh, um, certainly, last but not least, I, I just wanted to briefly mention uh, just because 
one of my favorite performances of all time is in the suite hereafter. And uh, we lost, ah. we lost Ian Holm and mm-hmm. uh, Bilbo Baggins himself. I've <laughs> really, yes. really, really sad, but uh, again, a legend. Ash. Yeah. 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 Of course. Oh, well, yeah. Alien was my introduction to him and boy, did he freak me out. Uh huh. Um, yeah. And you yeah, know, seeing yeah. that at the, uh, was it the music? It wasn't the music, music box. Yeah. With yeah. Tom's character. There and his right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh my God. That yeah. movie still works in every mm-hmm. way. Such a, uh, just so, I mean, there's something cool about that. It's like, I envy people who see it for the first time now mm-hmm. and, you know, not just for the chest bursting scene, but, um, I, I watched it with my daughter for the first time this year oh, and boy. she was like, you know, for so long she was like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Cause she thought it was going to be like crazy horror and everything. Um, but it's all about suspense and I'm, you know, she's into acting and I said, watch this guy's performance. Yeah. And I wasn't telling her, I wasn't telling her the twist or anything like that. I was just, just to watch this guy and see what he does with this role. And afterwards she's like, wow. You know? Yeah. No. And it's, it's another incredible career that, uh, I'll definitely go back and watch some of his work for sure. Um, to celebrate, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring those up really quickly. Yeah. Cause, uh, I think, you know, again, we're here to sort of, uh, bring some titles to the forefront in hopes that people go and back and check them out. And, uh, For sure. we're going to talk about some more pretty soon and we're going to move on right now to the, what we watch segment. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay home and watch more movies. Oh, DVDs or online stream during the quarantine what did we watch this week what did we watch this week i'm certainly uh excited to talk about the new spike lee movie but is there yeah. uh, is there something else you know, recently that you mm-hmm. want to bring up to bring to people's attention that you really responded to? Um, well, like I said, I've been catching up and as far as really responding to, I mean, I just watched this morning. Um, I've never seen it and I finally caught up with it cause it's coming out. I think next week, uh, on a, a special Blu-ray signature edition. And that's Milos Forman's, uh, hair. Oh really? Nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, never, never seen it. Neither uh, have knew, I actually. I I knew the songs like "Let the Sunshine" and and Aquarius, um, but yeah. Olive Films is uh, releasing it as a as a pretty nifty uh, Blu-ray signature edition. Um, it's got some cool bells and whistles. They talked to Twilight Tharp, the uh, choreographer. They talked to um, some most of the cast except for Treat, Treat Williams. Uh, they talked to the editors involved. Um, um, they have an interesting conversation with James Mangold uh, because apparently um, when he was coming up in New York, he actually took a class with Milos Forman. Um, And um, it's, it was fascinating because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Mangold's work. And so it's interesting to see, I love watching and hearing, you know, directors geek out about other directors. Um, So it was interesting hearing him, you know, talk about, uh, they're both directors, but 
it's interesting how in this segment he was saying, well, what I got out most of it is out of what I most got out of it. My time with Foreman is writing. And, um, you know, because that was, you know, the first thing that that's mostly what we worked on in this directing class is, is writing. And so, you know, it was, there's some good features, uh, special features on that uh, Blu-ray. I, I really enjoyed, um, the film, um, you know, it's one of those sometimes dated movies. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, um, how they're dated, um, uh, mm-hmm. because they, they capture a certain amount of time. Um, if the movie is good, then it doesn't matter if they're, you know, set in a period of time or came out in a certain time. It's, it's always going to be good. Right. Oh, yeah, uh, so, sure. yeah. So, um, it was great to see, um, certain, this is, uh, it's always great to, when you catch up with a movie, you start to see like maybe other supporting actors, like me either making their debut or having a small role. So there's, this is actually the film debut of Nell Carter. Huh. Give me a break. Give me a <laughs> yeah, break. I know, right. Right. Wow. And, um, that was great to see. And, there's a small, I don't know, I think it's a, I don't think it's a debut, but there's a funny small role of one of my favorite uh, character actors who's no longer with us, Michael Jeter, um, who was in The Fisher King. And, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you probably know him from The Fisher King who did the singing telegram thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he also had a, a great supporting role in uh, Kevin Costner's Open Range. Uh, well, that was one of his last roles and he, he died of AIDS. Um, but, um, it was fun seeing him, um, in, in this role. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because especially watching it now in some of the things that are being brought up in our culture, um, there's this, um, I, again, I only knew two of the, two of the big songs from the movie, but there's this, um, song called white boys and, and there's a song about how um i think it's how nutritious and luscious you know black men are uh, and i was like okay all right um it is interesting it's it's i don't know you know again i don't know the origins of um the stage production i know the movie is a little bit um different understandably and some of the songs are in a different order. And I think Milos was very interested in being organic and uh, very loose. Um, there was uh, John Savage even said he was more interested in the whole connection to uh, Vietnam War at the time and, and, and how that's involved in the movie. Like he was, actually doing some reshoots for the deer hunter while he was making this movie, um, uh, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I think some things have changed, uh, but overall, if you come to, um, Foreman's hair as I did, you know, kind of cold uh, and you have already kind of an appreciation for, um, Foreman's work, whether it be Cuckoo's Nest or Amadeus, I think, um, this is just one of those movies that you inevitably have to catch up with. And uh, it's a pretty, like I said, a pretty nifty D uh, Blu-ray uh, release. Well, I'll definitely pick that up. I, I think uh, Foreman is a director that I'm 
putting pretty high on the list to cover soon enough because of uh, because of Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus especially. But you know he's had he had earlier work in, in, you know in his in his native country uh, right that is still you know a blind spot for me and I th- I think a lot of that was highly acclaimed. I totally agree. It's a blind spot for me, and they're kind of hard to find. Right. Um, so I don't know if Criterion has them or what, but uh, I would definitely like to seek them out. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, somebody you know, should put out a like, box set of his early work. That would, yeah. Hello, Criterion. Yeah. If you're listening, if you're listening. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, but even like uh, Ragtime, um, Larry Flint, um, mm-hmm. good, good stuff. No, yeah, definitely. And it, it, it's funny that you bring up hair because a, a recent first time watch for me was the. Uh, the monkeys movie head, which, oh, wow. which was, I just felt like, okay, well, I, I, do I really need to, you know, uh, get high because watching this movie is pretty much what yeah. it feels like. Right. Right. <laughs> it is such yeah. a trip. It is such like a, it's almost like an Amazon women on the moon kind of thing where it, it jumps from different like uh, settings and scenes of them doing crazy stuff that's almost Zucker Brothers like, just oh, like wow. the sense of humor of that is just so out there and so crazy and yet very political at times. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, it's it, it really took me aback because it's it's you know it's it's making a cultural statement. Obviously, when you have people like Bob Rafelson and, and Jack Nicholson having mm. a hand in, in in writing this sort of acid trip of a movie. Was Hopper involved in that too? I don't think so. No, okay. I mean he he might have been in the background for it, but I think it's primarily <laughs> Rafelson and uh, and Nicholson who even make okay because it's this weird like there's even breaking the fourth wall stuff where like Jack Nicholson comes in to direct the scene all of a sudden <laughs> it's just like it's such a weird surreal absurdist movie that I'm, I'm kind of surprised because it's right up my sense. It's just my exact sense of humor was kind of epitomized in this thing. And I'm not like a big monkeys aficionado or anything. I just kept hearing, um, especially after rewatching uh, Soderbergh's Schizopolis, that mm. if I'm a fan of that, then I would really like uh, the monkeys movie head. And I was like, okay. And, no. and they were right. <laughs> now um, that came out in the early seventies, right? Yeah, I believe so. Or- yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how did you watch it? You streamed it or just rented yeah, it? Yeah. I think I I think I streamed it on Amazon. Maybe. Okay. I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's out there. It's 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 relatively it, accessible. No, it's it's funny that we're talking about both of these because both of them are are dated, but I think both of them are are each important. Um, For I sure. think obviously hair coming from, you know, stage productions, but with, with head, it became such a, uh, I, I hadn't seen it. I'd love to see it, but, um, it, it's funny you mentioned Amazon women because it's both those movies are pretty much have this cult status. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I, I'd love to look into, you know, find out more about how head was, do you, do you know how it was originally re- released? Because obviously, it had to have developed, like, obviously there was this fan base with the monkeys, but, but then it became a word of mouth thing and then like a cult hit. Yeah. I, I, don't, don't, know. I don't know. I think th- that criterion put out a box set of like all these movies that Rafelson, I forgot what that box set is. I know Patrick has it and that's something I should just no. probably get. Cause it includes, um, 
uh, five easy pieces. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe, maybe even the last picture show. I think. Uh, oh, okay. I think. Yeah, but it's, it's just a, it, it, I don't know, it's a, it's an anomaly. I watch this thing and I'm like, I, I don't know how they expected this to. I mean, again, maybe this was the mentality of the late '60s, sort of fused into this movie, because I mean, yes, there is political commentary and certainly things about about Vietnam. I mean, God, you have Frank Zappa that shows up in a cameo really quickly. Um, nah. it, it is very pro LSD. <laughs> um, oh, okay. And, I, I, I see it. It says America lost and found right. the BBS story. So there's head, easy rider, five easy pieces drive. He said a safe place, last picture show in the King of Marvin gardens. Oh yeah. Those are just, that, that's, that's a crazy collection. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of everything. It's, you know, it's kind of got every genre mashed into it. Uh, but I mean, I just, I was really taken aback by how weird and wacky and strange and at times kind of dark and, it, but, but it's very plotless, you know, it just sort of, it mm-hmm. sort of jumps around feverishly at times that you sort of have to like a- adjust your expectations. Like don't expect you're going to watch a traditional movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know? So it, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's sort of all over the place, but again, it's one of those that, uh, I think, I think watching it now, yeah, it's a good time to watch it. It, it really is. Cause it's good escapism, yeah. but it also taps oh, yeah. into a lot of the, a lot of things we're talking about very similarly to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, the five bloods because that right. opens with again, kind of what you would expect from a Spike Lee movie is just like a, a series of montages about, you know, Vietnam only from the black perspective. But um, if there was ever a time for a new Spike Lee movie, it's, it's certainly now, <laughs> you know, gosh, it is, it is uncanny uh, how timely it is. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because I was, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big fan of the five bloods. I'll just put it out there. Um, Me too. But, but I was watching, uh, <laughs> I think it was, it was either last week or the week before. Um, I happened to, to see, you know, on Instagram when you can see that people are going live and you're like, Oh, okay. Oh yeah. So Spike, Spike Lee was going live and I'm like, Oh, I'm curious, you know, cause you know, he's talking about his new movie. So he's going live and then he brought on a guest and it was Snoop Dogg. Whoa. And it, it was, it was so funny because they were both kind of geeking out about each other. And it was, it was cool to see them, you know, talking about, you know, what's go, what's going on now, but also, uh, Snoop was just like, man, this movie, you know, because Snoop was saying that his, his father was a Vietnam war vet and he could really relate with, uh, Delroy Lindo's character and Spike's like, Whoa, really? Wow. You know, so it was just fun to watch these guys kind of, you know, geek out over each other and just support each other. Uh, but it's, there was one thing that's interesting, you know, Spike wanted to bring, you know, kind of to everybody's attention. And in his conversation with Snoop, he was like, Hey Snoop, you know, that scene at the end, everybody's saying that, you know, I tacked that on, you know, with the whole black lives matter and everything. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, and he's like, no, that was the first stuff we shot. And I was like, you know, and it makes sense because, I mean, that kind of thing was pretty much at the end of Malcolm X. Sure. And it's, 
these are things that have always been on Spike Lee's mind. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not late to necessarily appreciate Spike Lee, but I think I'm going into a reappreciation of his work. Yeah. I think everybody um, and, should and, right and, now. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and looking, you know, cause definitely like, um, I've always, I've always liked, you know, films like, you know, Crooklyn and Clockers and of course do the right thing. Uh, I have some blind spots that I want to catch up on and, I only recently, after The Five Bloods, uh, saw Malcolm X in its entirety. I've only seen parts, mm-hmm. and uh, man, that's his that's his opus right there. That's that's yeah. huge, yeah. Um, amazing, yeah. amazing, yeah, amazing stuff. Um, but The Five Bloods really, uh, I was um, I was definitely surprised and pleased, uh, surprised by how. I immediately just love these four characters. Right. Yeah. No. I, yeah. And, and and it's a testament to the actors, of course. But right. You know, you don't I, I, necessarily need yeah. an entire full fledged backstory either. Mm-hmm. You just know they have a camaraderie. Yeah. When they meet up at the hotel in uh, in uh, Hanoi, I think um, again, and you know, it's, it's what you know. 50 years after the war or whatever. Um, man, I, I was just like, man, I like these guys, you right. know? And, and, and then I grew to really just, you know, love the com- complexity of their characters and, and, you know, the secrets that they were holding back and, and, you know, the, the love that they had for each other, but there's that friendship where they're just kind of, you know, antagonizing each other and, you know, <laughs> poking at each other and pushing the right buttons and, and, certain things that are hard to talk about. Um, yeah, I thought it was, it was really deep. And, and, you know, I was, you know, I was telling, uh, some other, uh, critic friends recently, you know, Spike isn't uh, a subtle director. Okay. No, no. And you have, you uh, have to prepare for that, you know? Yeah. And, and I, and I don't mind that if, because, because he's so, uh, I mean, once you get, used to that, then you expect it. So you, you don't mind it, you know, just, just as I don't mind YouTube preaching at a concert. It's like, that's what you kind of go there for as well. Um, but, but it's like with, with Spike, there's a certain amount of, you know, uh, preaching and, and, uh, and, uh, hitting, hitting you over the head a little bit. And, and I don't mind that because it's coming from some, a place of passion and he wants to point things out that are either, uh, relevant today or that took place, uh, in the past, but speaks to today. Um, so, you know, the reason I say that he's, he's not a subtle director, what you can do when you watch his films is you can appreciate the subtleties and the nuances in the performances. And, you know, that Denzel in Malcolm X, um, you know, Danny Aiello in do the right thing. Um, but these these four guys, and even you know the fifth guy, you know Chadwick Boseman. I mean, there's some nuances here. There's some subtleties going on that's just it. It really touched me. Yeah, I know. It really unpacks the entire history of like just you know the the, the Black American wartime experience. But at the same time, and as political as the film gets, and rightfully should be, it's also. Mm-hmm an entertaining take on my favorite movie, actually the treasure of Sierra Madre. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's been my favorite movie for, I think a good 10 years now. Um, after we did a John Houston episode, I just sort of came to the conclusion that 
this movie is America. This movie says everything about human nature and greed and mm-hmm. just, you know, how people get so lost in their own heads and their own projected ideals of what it means to finally make it and what it means to yeah. finally have financial stability and all that. But, you know, and, and as serious as things get in this film, I was, I was kind of just, yeah, like you said, um, I was a little bit giddy watching these four actors together. And like you said, poking fun at each other and mm-hmm. even Delroy Lindo having, uh, that, make America great again hat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that was, what that means yeah. in the end. And, mm-hmm. uh, Oh yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's, you know, and again, the plot is very simple and, you know, and just like, yeah, these, these vets return to recover the remains of their fallen squad leader and, uh, bring home this cache of gold that they stashed in the Hills. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I can, I can see the criticism of like, okay, maybe it's, trying to be too many things, but I also say that's Spike Lee and Mm -hmm. that's his style. That's his approach that I come to expect maybe kind of a, at times a feverish mishmash of a lot of things going on and a lot of characters and summer of Sam jungle fever, Chirac, there's all these ingredients into his recipe. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, to me, it's not a mess either. No, wow. I think it's not a mess because it's, I, I consider Chirac kind of a mess because it's a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so totally all over the place. Right. Right. Um, and it's, it's maybe trying to be a satire a bit. And that's how I, that's too, how I feel about, um, bamboozled. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And, and that's a movie that's in my blind spot. I, I need to catch up on that. Um, but yeah, I think what, what's different about this is these performances performances just and these characters feel just so real and authentic and grounded that well i mean they ground the movie where it doesn't feel so all over the place because you know they these characters ground the movie um you know i I, there's some criticism about like maybe the third act and how it's just kind of like a kind of like our you know the our heroes take their last stand at the temple in the jungle and it's like okay but I, I didn't mind that either because I was just so already invested and on board yeah. with these characters, you know. Yeah, I think the only critique I I have is just like you know the mustache twirling, even though he doesn't have a mustache. I don't think uh, Jean Jean Reno uh, showing yeah. up and yeah, I mean with like he's kind of just <laughs> he's kind of just there to be the villain, and you know I I'm fine with it once it becomes an action spectacle. I again like. It didn't bother me because, like you said, I think everything else surrounding it is it, is very strong, and you want to see what happens to all these characters. And mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I th- I think what what Spike Lee is trying to do is really just recontextualize the war movie, uh, and you know yeah. he does it from uh, always a really engaging perspective in his other films. Like you can even think of Black Klansman as maybe his Sidney Lumet movie in a way of you know the undercover cop. That's a good way to put it. Story. I would say, yeah, I would say this is more of his maybe Oliver Stone, De Palma type movie. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I look at the Vietnam War movies from those two guys, and this is, I feel like, on par with that as far as the intensity and the heart behind it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really I good. Think, I, th- I, you I know, think it's one of the best films of, of the year, for sure. Agreed. It's my number one so far. Um, you know, it's, it's funny... 
you know, at first, I don't know about you, but at first when I saw that Netflix was grabbing all these movies, you know, before it was, they were doing original content and everything. I was wondering, it's like, oh, well, is everything going to be on Netflix now? Is, is what, what, what about the theatrical experience? And now here we are without a theatrical experience. And I'm really just glad that Netflix and, you know, other streaming places have nabbed, you know, are supporting these movies. I mean, he got, of course, in the last couple of years, Irishman, Roma, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's streaming services and, 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 you know, production companies that are, you know, giving it, it's crazy to think that some studios or some directors are having a hard time getting funding. Like Scorsese is like, Oh, I'm working on this, but I need funding. It's like Scorsese needs funding. How is this possible? <laughs> you know? And, and, and then like, I'm just glad that, you know, directors like Lee and, and, and Scorsese can, can get, um, uh, funding and get, um, a platform for everybody to see, you know, yeah, it's like all I, you need is, I feel like some know, of my, you know, favorite directors, you know, maybe even including someone like De Palma or John Carpenter or, or Joe Dante, like all the all like directors who have, yeah, you know, sort of complained about the studio system and, not being able to fund mm-hmm. certain projects or a lot of projects falling by the wayside. I, I, it does feel like they should have more opportunity with the, the, just the plethora of streaming uh, services that are out there. And, you know, there's, I mean, yes, of course I want to see the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie on the big screen. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I want that in my life. Yeah. But I would, yeah. I'm okay. I would even like to see Defy Bloods on the big screen. Sure, but, no, you know, of, course, of course. This is where we're at. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I sort of feel like you kind of have to adapt, and you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, a decent sized TV isn't that expensive now. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tend to use like really decent wireless headphones, and the sound always sounds great for me. You know, it's like the surround sound experience isn't what it is when you're sitting in a movie theater and the volume gets loud. Uh, But I I still think I've adapted to, okay, if if I am going to, if the only way to see the new Scorsese movie is on Apple TV plus or whatever, I'll subscribe to it for, you know, for a month or whatever and see what it's like and, and just, accept it you know and because i don't know yeah. i don't know what the future is going to be be like yeah now. i mean yeah you bring up a good point i'd love to see somebody like dante or carpenter like you know hook up a shutter or something like that exactly you know? that's exactly yeah. what should be happening <laughs> because yeah. they shouldn't they shouldn't struggle i mean i mean I, I i think john carpenter just wants to smoke pot and play video games and you know reap mm. the, uh, reap the benefits of uh of, of remakes you know getting well he <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he did go on his live tour within the last like two or three years, that's right? True. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I just, again, like I, I don't know if he'll ever make another, you know, Halloween or whatever. But yeah. I, 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 or the thing. But at the same time, if he wants to make something, I think he should be given the freedom to do so. And we'll see what it, we'll see what happens with all this because uh, yeah, you know, there there are streaming wars out there at this point, and I don't know. Understandably, if, yeah. Was, but um, yeah, I, I I will say that uh, you know, there's a lot of good films that you can see that are streaming, and I hope people really go out of their way. Uh, get yourself a Netflix account if you don't have one already. Oh my gosh! And yeah, see the Five Bloods at home. It's okay, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
All right, let's move on if you're ready. Okay, time to talk about the director of the episode, Mr. Peter Weir. Peter Weir, let's talk about this director. Mosquito Coast, Truman Show, Master and Commander. You should know how much that I love Fearless. Let's talk about Peter one more time. So, yeah, on the last episode where we talked about him, I think I mentioned this, like we did this nine years ago or something, and <laughs> we focused mainly on uh, The Last Wave and my personal favorite Weir film, Fearless, which I think, you know, we're, we're going to definitely talk about it later. It's going to come mm-hmm. up uh, regardless okay. because it's a special film and one that I'm certain that you have things to say about. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's 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 been close to a decade, and I think... Um, the only other movie he made that I didn't really get to talk about at length. And again, I wonder what's going on. I I, I should have maybe done a little research to see why the only other film he's made in the, in the past decade was 2010's the way back, you know, and I wonder what, you know, if there's a reason or if he's just essentially retired at this point. Um, I, he's got him according to IMDb, he's got a movie that he's, apparently working on uh, an adap- adaptation of a Jennifer Egan novel called The Keep. Uh, two cousins with a shared secret move into a haunted castle that turns dreams and nightmares into reality. <gasps> that sounds totally up my alley. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Wow. So take, take, take your time, 75-year-old Peter Weir, and make a movie, please. Yes, uh, yes, for sure. No, I think... <laughs> I think I'm I'm really happy to to go back and this is sort of, you know, kicking off a possibility of next year mainly being episodes like this because mm-hmm. you know, when we when I uh, talked about um Paul Thomas Anderson with Steve Procopi, the master hadn't come out yet. That's how long ago it was. Oh wow. Okay. So it's like yeah, we yeah. have um the master inherent vice and uh Phantom Thread. That we right. can certainly dive into at length. For sure. But no, I For think sure. I think we're as a filmmaker that everyone should keep exploring or revisiting because of what he has to say about nature versus nurture and mm-hmm. the kind of the the white male ego gone awry, uh, and especially what happens when humanity sort of gets lost in in, in the pursuit of uh, of power mm-hmm. and. You know, I, th- I the the one strength that I keep coming back to of the of all of his work again is uh, something I probably already talked to you about, um, and, and that's sound design. Like, well, yeah, what he yeah. does with sound is kind of unreal. As I'm he- like I'm watching his movies and hearing these really ominous drones and just eerie things going on. That I think he even said that he sampled. Uh, with his uh, with a, a very well respected sound designer whose name escapes me, but he said that they sampled the sound of an earthquake for it was either Last Wave or Picnic and Hanging Rock, but and they sort of like slowed it down to where it didn't even sound 
like an earthquake anymore, but it actually sounded like like just weird, you know, synthy music. Like he just knows yeah. how to mix classical music with like these um, electronic programmed music that's very Brian Eno at times. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I just, I just kind of get really lost in his ability to uh, surround you in really interesting tones and sounds, but. And and uh, strangely enough, <laughs> there were times watching the Mosquito Coast when I thought of our current president. Uh, oh boy! And how poisonous it can be to think <laughs> you know better than everyone else around you. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 really great to to go back and um, you know particularly the the two films that y- you wanted to highlight here, both star both star Harrison Ford in very interesting performances mm-hmm. that yeah, uh, we can I, talk about. Yeah, I do feel like they are probably two of Harrison Ford's uh, better performances. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Harrison Ford is, is, has an interesting career, and he's he's been involved in some duds uh, here and there. And every time one of his movies, um, a few of his movies, you know, flop, I always just think, just, just get back together with Peter Weir and make a great movie. <laughs> Cause it just seems like they had a great working relationship and, um, For sure. you know, witness, witness, uh, Peter Weir has, um, you know, directed actors, um, in, you know, Oscar nominated performances and, uh, you know, even Linda Hunt won an Oscar for best supporting actress oh, in, for the year, for the year of living dangerously. Oh. Yeah. Such a great role. Um, yeah. so he's, got away with bringing out the best in his actors and um you know he's peter wears an, an oscar nominated director and his some of his films have been nominated for best picture as well uh but i think like i, I guess the reason that you know witness and mosquito coast uh stick out to me is just because you know growing up i was such a and it still am a harrison ford fan and you know growing up in star wars and indiana jones you know, Witness was kind of like the next thing, um, the, the, pretty much the first thing that wasn't really, you know, sci-fi or fantasy related um, that that he was doing. And uh, all we knew was like, you know, Don Book is a cop, you know, <laughs> as a, a Pennsylvania cop. And I remember remember watching this with my grandparents at, uh, I think it was at the Displays Theater um, when it came out. And, you know, of course I was watching Siskel and Ebert and reading Ebert's reviews and, and I just knew that it was, you know, a, a good movie. And it, it's one of those, when you're following certain actors or directors, um, that you wind up kind of introducing yourself to like maybe a different genre or a different, um, style of movie. And I think with both of these movies, you are taking um, a man who's in witness really good at, you know, uh, what he does. He's, a, he's an honest cop. He's good at whacking people, as Kelly McGillis says um, in, in the movie. Um, and also in Mosquito Coast, you know, he plays this, you know, kind of manic obsessed uh, inventor individual with, uh, you know, uh, definitely a, a certain way of thinking. Um, who's a, a father and a husband uh, who becomes obsessed, you know, with 
getting out of America and he becomes driven himself. So, but they're both really good at what they do. Um, and I think, um, a lot of in, in Weir's movies, um, there are, there are, there are characters and protagonists who are really good at something, but then they wind up, you know, being put into situations that are either out of their element or beyond their control. And it, it forces them to, uh, you know, make some huge decisions. And that's, you know, great drama right there. It's great drama. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, even something like the Truman show, which, you know, I, st- I, 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 it's one of the more rewatchable movies of, of, of his filmography for sure. Just because like, Oh yeah, it's, it was the, one of the first entries of Jim Carrey doing something a little more dramatic, but also mm-hmm. it's just, it's so damn entertaining from beginning oh, to yeah. end. Uh, oh, yeah. and yeah. And you, I like, I get so caught up and unexpectedly emotional in his arc in the same way that I do with pretty much every, every protagonist, you know, that, that, that we're invest, you know, us in, and mm-hmm. it's like, it's, and it's, and it's fascinating to watch witness because does it have the intense emotional catharsis and complexity of something like fearless? Probably not, but it's still a genre film done right. Like right. I, I can't imagine, like I think initially like John Badham got a hold of the script and he just dismissed it as this, this is just another undercover cop movie or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but when you put it in the hands of Weir and Ford, they, they add layers to it. They, they make it more interesting because like, you can certainly go, okay, this is kind of like a Hitchcockian thriller. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it, it plays that way, but it's also about acclimating yourself into a whole other world, which is something that I think Weir goes back to time and time again in interesting mm-hmm. and different ways. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it's and, um, and to some degree like the you know the poor poor little Lucas Haas, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, loses his innocence just by being in that oh, yeah. restroom at the absolute most wrong time. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you, you get caught up in, in all of these characters' lives. And I think the only thing that came out of this that was in the least bit negative was really just like the Amish community didn't take too well to it and just sort of found it to be an, 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 sorry, an accurate portrayal of, of their mm-hmm. way of life. But I also don't find it to be condescending or cliché. When you think well, of I, things like Kingpin, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> you that's know? a good double. That's a good double feature right there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, I never. Again, at the age that I saw it, you know, in my teens, I, I thought that it was, again, a great introduction to Amish culture. Yeah. Um, and I never thought that it was condescending at all. Um, you know, growing up in. Uh, you know, a, a Christian, having a Christian background and going to church and everything, I thought it was in a very interesting way to see this community that still exists, you know, uh, now and back in the eighties, um, just, you know, existing on their own, uh, alongside culture, technology, modern, modern, uh, culture. Um, there's, yeah, there's, I don't, I don't know what the big issue was, uh, maybe the fact that they were even, um, included in a story like this, 
you know? Yeah, um, that could be. I, I don't know. But when I see, um, like, uh, the boy uh, having a conversation with, um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's his grandfather, um, Eli. Mm-hmm. Um, Eli, Eli Lapp, played by uh, Jan Rubes, Rubes. Um, that conversation he has about uh, how can you tell if a man is bad, like, that is just awesome. I mean, just, just to see, well, I can tell by the things he does, you know, and I can tell, you know, because he had just witnessed a horrifying murder, as you mentioned, in, okay. a, in a Philadelphia, Philadelphia bathroom. Um, but this conversation about, um, you know, what, what a man does, um, the actions that man does and what's inside his heart and, and, you know, holding a gun and, you know, committing uh, murder, um, just that quiet scene of between, um, a grandfather and his grandson. Um, I thought that that right there just brings, um, such a relatable humanity, um, to this story. Um, yeah, even, even when I first saw it, I was like, wow, that's, these are some very interesting subjects here to, to think about. Yeah. And I think that's what Weir brings to pretty much all his films is just, yeah, a real sense of humanity and, and empathy for whomever he's, he's, you know, uh, covering. And, and, and in a film like this, I just think that there's a lot of sensitivity that Ford brings to the role that mm-hmm. I, you know, really surprises me. And again, like, maybe you can sort of map out and predict, you know, from A to B to see how things are going to play out in terms of, you know, the conflict and the right. fact that there's, you know, dirty cops and all that stuff. But to me, it's still like the, the journey is absolutely worth the destination. And even if you're like, oh, okay, well that, that was exactly how I thought it would be, but it's still incredibly satisfying because you do care about even just the, the community itself, even if you don't get to know them in the same way that you do uh, Kelly McGillis, uh, I, I just right. like you. You do have interesting side characters like that, uh, like the, uh, the, the 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 evil. Uh, <laughs> I just think of him as the, the evil Russian guy from Die Hard. Oh, uh, Alexander Goodenough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shows up here, and uh, uh, was this Viggo Mortensen's first role? Or? Oh yeah, I think it was his first. Yeah, his first movie role. Um, yeah, they they are they are playing brothers, uh, right. Moses Hochleitner and Daniel Hochleitner. <laughs> you know, great great names. Absolutely. Um, no, but you, but you, yeah, you care about all of them. Yeah, you do because you you feel like you're a part of the community because um, you know. And as far as screenplays go, it's it's efficient. It's a basic, and that's not a dig or anything. It's just it's it's direct. Um, and, and it's, it includes, I feel like it includes enough of everybody, you know, I mean, um, the corruption of the police department, we get enough of that. Um, it's not too heavy handed. There's not too much, you know, I don't really recall any exposition. So it's just, um, economical and also it's, it flows. It's easy to, um, follow. Um, I think once we get to the, uh, the Amish community, um, it really is interesting because it's always interesting to see some main character out of his element. Right. Uh, but it's also, you know, there's a certain, at first we see John book Ford's character as somebody who's, 
you know, very good at his job, you know, very, he takes control. Um, and he knows how to rough people up, like I said, but there's a certain, uh, an, an interesting amount of humility once he gets to the Amish uh, community because mm-hmm. he was, he, he shows up injured, he's taken care of, and there's almost this, um, like, it's almost like a, a missionary showing up at a, at a, a village in a jungle, like, uh, we kind of get to I, that later on. Yeah, we, we do, don't we? Yeah, but but it's, it's kind of like how how one should approach a different culture with with humility and quietness. Yeah, and, and not judgment. Yeah, not judgment. Just just uh, I know I'm all of a sudden being integrated into this culture, so I just need to like shut up and you know. Yeah, part of it was he had to blend in, and he knew he had to blend in, you know. And he looked apart. The There's that great scene where his his outfit <laughs> it has his, his pants are basically floods. Um, but but yeah, I think that he is as a character. He is uh, aware enough to know that you know right now. <laughs> I'm yes, I'm laying low. Um, th- these people took care of me. I need to just integrate myself uh, for as however long I need to. And I, I thought that was very interesting. It was a good look at um, appreciating a culture um, in a kind of in a, a natural subtle way. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's good to showcase a little bit of tension between, you know, the community and him to some degree, like not to, not to an overwhelming point where you think, you know, uh, like, uh Oh, there's going to be a fight that's going to break out or, you know, something, right? you know, that's that you'd come to expect maybe because like, I, I think, sure. I think, I think it all ultimately comes down to that, that beautiful, beautiful barn raising sequence mm, that, you know, just shows how open he is and how he's willing to not just help, but actually have a connection with these people in a very meaningful way. And right. you, and that's the other thing too. It's like that, that the romance that sort of develops, you, you buy it and it doesn't feel you forced do. like in other movies. I really do, do care about them. It, yeah. And it naturally builds up to it. Um, exactly. Because you, you see even the way she looks at him in, in Philadelphia, you know, you know McGillis's performance here. I mean, she, she plays a very observant, Mm-hmm. but also kind of progressive Amish person. Sure. Um, and the fact that she's a woman, it, she's looked at a certain way in her community, like they should be doing only a certain amount of things and that's it. But she, you know, her the movie opens with basically a, a funeral where her husband pretty much had recently died. So it's just her, her I'm pretty sure the, the grandfather is her father, right? Or I was it so. his father? I believe yeah, so. I, yeah. It, yeah. I think, or it might've been his father. I don't know. Uh, but you know, I think that she's in, in her performance, we see these, these subtleties of, you know, maybe she's curious about John book. Maybe she's attracted to him. You know, maybe, you know, she's giving this outsider a chance. Whereas other people in her community are like, Oh, this, this English, this English man, you know, comes, you know, and uh, we're very, you know, suspicious and curious and rumors are spreading along the farms. And, 
you know, and that's, that's something that's kind of relatable in any community, right? Mm -hmm. You know, whenever something new is introduced, you know, whatever community you're in, even whatever block you live on, people start to talk whenever something new is, is introduced or integrated. Um, so you, you know, you don't have to know a whole lot about Amish culture to kind of pick up on these relatable aspects. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, and, and certainly there's bound to be trepidation, but I, I like that. That's not the, the focus. You know, right. There's an eventual um, integration in a way that does feel organic and doesn't feel like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, look at him wearing the funny hat and oh yeah, like you know, like I I think it could really go the wrong way and and it certainly <laughs> certainly has and in you know I think in certain comedies it's a it's obviously played for laughs but. I think that they just really find the right balance and and certainly creates great suspense, even when they're, you know, the the eventual confrontation and sort of shootout in like a barn setting. Like you kind of know where everything is in Uh in relation to the geography of everything because you, you, you've grown um, to know the environment that he's in. And I think that I really like how that plays into uh, how one of the guys gets basically killed by grain. Um, oh my gosh, that 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 freaked me out when I was a kid when I first saw that because I, I was I like, because the camera is basically in the silo with you know the Fergie the, the character, um, and it's just it feels suffocating. It was great, um, <laughs> but but the tension of it all, even when Ford is still in there trying to grab the gun, and Danny Glover's character, you know, you 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 notice that he's hearing something. And so he goes back into that. And then, oh, it's just the, the way that all that is choreographed shot by shot is just very well done. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, as far as the way this shot, I mean, we have to mention that this was lensed by cinematographer, John seal, who's amazing. Oh, for God. I mean, yeah, this, for sure. yeah, this is, this is a guy who lends, you know, not just, uh, I mean, the English patient, the talented Miss Ripley, um, Mad Max Fury road, Never um, heard of that one. I, yeah, I, never. No, <laughs> you got to catch up with that one. Yeah, probably. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dead Poet Society as well, uh, and of course uh, Mosquito Coast. So he he's collaborated with Weir in a number of times. But um, I think, like I said, at an early when I when I saw this at an early age, uh, um, I was kind of um, on a steady diet of you know, uh, certain genre films like, you know, fantasy and sci-fi, maybe some horror, but with this, I, I really think that this might've been my, my first, uh, introduction to more of like a, a, a drama, even though this is kind of like a cop procedural in a way, it's also, uh, a romance and yeah. it's also, um, basically, you know, one of those films that introduces you to a certain type of culture, a certain type of people. So it was really intriguing for me at a young age, but it also with seals cinematography. Um, I was, I think it was one of the first films where I was really conscious of certain shots and the ways certain scenes were framed. Um, uh, you know, like, um, when, when the three bad cops, um, do show up the homage village. You see the car kind of pull up on the, on the edge of the road and then pull back because they don't want to be seen. And then you just see the three guys from behind the camera shoots them from behind and they're just walking with their, 
shotguns towards the, the towards the the farm, and it's just like, oh. And you have you know the Maurice Warre's uh, wonderful score, you know the building up, and it's just there's you know there's some it was shot you know that looked like it was shot during dusk and everything, and it, it was just you know something that was really captivating to me even at a young age. Yeah, and and at the same time, it's it's you know starts out you know Hitchcockian because it, you know of the of the witness of a murder mm-hmm. and. Yeah, what's going to become of that is is something that right. obviously you you want to stick with, and and I I yes, it's got the, you know the the cultural collision element, and it's mm-hmm. got the love story, and it's got thriller elements, but no, they all sort of just weave into one another in a way that doesn't feel like jarring, like you're watching you know suddenly three different movies with three different tones all in one movie. It's it just all flows, and I think that's what. Weird does so beautifully, um, right? To where it's like this is this is an, a great example of okay, you know, maybe you don't want to be Charlie Kaufman, you just want to do a you just want to do a solid genre thriller, you know, because mm-hmm. I think just about almost every single director on the planet wants to make a Hitchcock movie. You know, it's kind right. of like been something I've been saying on this show is like, oh yeah, this director decided to do this movie, and clearly, you know. Uh, you know, someone like Anthony Minghella wanted to make his own Hitchcock movie with talented Mr. Ripley or, you mm-hmm. know, something like that. And I think this is Weir's Hitchcock movie, but yet at the same time, it doesn't, it, it, it's not like, oh, constantly filled with suspense because you get a lot of reprieve with, um, you know, just being able to spend time with this community and, and, and character building in a way that's, that's really endearing and not like hokey, you know? I just think, I think right. it finds the right balance. Right. And I think, um, speaking of balance, watching it again, um, catching up with it again, and it's amazing how watching again, I realized like how much I watched it as a kid. Like, cause I just, I remember having a beaten up uh, VHS copy and how much, how often I would watch it. And I just knew the lines and the, and the different scenes. Um, but it's interesting to see the, the themes, the, kind of the uh, discussion of passive, passive, can't even say it, passive, yes, thank you, <laughs> um, pass, pacifism versus violence right. in this movie. Um, and, of course, um, Amish communities, nonviolent, uh, you have Philadelphia cops who are violent. Um, and as you mentioned, those, those cultures are colliding. Um, but it's interesting to see how, you know, maybe one of the reasons why book wound up changing so much is because he was around this community that was so against violence, mm-hmm. so against everything that he was used to. And, you know, he, I think deep in him, there was this, uh, maybe an appreciation for, um, reconnecting to something as, as, as pure and, and kind of um, hopeful as a, a nonviolent, you know, community. Um, it just it just seemed like he was in a way almost like a, a natural fit. Like this was a a, a well needed sabbatical for this, you know, kind of uh, hard worn, you know, cop. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think uh, yeah. there's real character growth by the end, and the ending mm-hmm. is is really just beautiful. I mean, oh, yeah. he, 
he knows he can't stay and, you know, try to blend in or convert. He was, you know, just, just there as, as sort of a protector and, you know, yeah, the, the person he fell in love with can't accompany him either. It's a no. very yeah. Casablanca kind of final yep. note to end Two on. Two different worlds. Yeah. You know, and I think it's I think it's it's quite beautiful. And I think if you would have done the, you know, sort of conventional, you know, she runs to him in slow motion and they wind up together forever, it wouldn't have played right at all. Right, right. And I think of course, knows that. Right. And, of course, there's that before that with um, the boy ringing the bell and all the men and women coming to uh, kind of the defense of John Book in front of uh, Lieutenant Schaefer uh, played by Joseph Summer and of course we get classic Harrison Ford finger waving, finger pointing Um, (laughs) great great stuff great stuff Um, yeah it's, it's a great cast and it's interesting to see uh, it's interesting to kind of remember like where some of these actors would show up, you know, almost immediately later, you know, of course, Danny Glover, Lisa Weapon, and, you know, Alexander Goodenough, Die Hard. Um, these, these movies would show up after 1985. And, um, and it's, um, you know, interesting that this was the only film that uh, Ford ever got an, Best Actor Oscar nomination. That's kind for. of surprising to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I su- I'm surprised I, he didn't get one, a supporting actor for Star Wars, really, because like it's he he yeah. he, it, he makes the, in terms of performance. I know that movies like that don't normally get nominated anyway, but just right. you know his 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 charisma alone in that is just you know for the it, it's the there's a reason why he's such a beloved character um i mean i almost think that his supporting performance in force awakens is just as good you know it's like it's it's just some great and especially for him to come back to that with you know not not phoning it in you know It, it, it it was just perfect um yeah i mean i think it was an interesting time for him to like get this Best Actor nomination because, like I said, it was it was something totally different from him. And this movie did really well right. in theaters. And if I don't think a movie like this would do very well in today's culture or theatrical releases, I think it would. You know, it, it's hard because it's just uh, it's it is kind of a character study. It's a romance. Um, I, I don't know. We were in a different culture. The way people watch movies, what kind of movies they watch. If it's not an intellectual property, if it's not a big summer blockbuster, if it's not a release by a, you know, uh, it's not, if it's not part of a franchise or something, it's, it's, it's hard to get any ground, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Um, It's funny to think though, like, man, 1985 was the year pretty much. I think, I think it's true for, for both Colin and, and Eric too, is that's, that's the year that, all us kids basically fell in love with movies because of uh, something like back to the future. Um, oh yeah. You know, uh, it, and yeah, it's just such it a is. great year for film. And this, this, this is included in that for sure. This came out the first week or the, the same week as Beverly Hills cop. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because <laughs> Sylvester Stallone passed on both of those roles. Wild. So the, he would have been John Book, and he would have been Axel Foley. 
That's just think about that. <laughs> no, he, he was he was born to basically just uh, uh, pl- play play America in in Rocky Four with right, right. you know nine montages and, yeah, and Rambo Two. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's those um, are, those, are, those films though. I I wound up taping and they were on the same tape, and I was like, you know what. I know Stallone's not the greatest actor in the world, and I know these movies aren't great, but I still get a kick out of them. <laughs> oh, heck, yeah. Especially I mean, when I was younger. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, a couple years after 85, there was Tango and Cash. I mean, come on, how can you not love Tango and Cash? Right. I mean, it's hilarious. Well, right after the success of, of Witness, I mean, Weir and Ford decided to work together once again on a, on a, on a very different film based on a novel by uh, Paul Thoreau, adapted by the great Paul Schrader. No who, whose yeah. fingerprints are kind of all over this film, especially early on. Uh, right, right. And originally, Jack Nicholson was slated to play the lead. I, I read that, and I'm like, mm, wow, mm, that that would have been interesting. Yeah, but I uh, just I would just see Jack. You know, I would see The right, Shining that, all over. That again. is the thing. I mean, that's the cool thing about this movie is I think Ford. It, this is even a, a, a greater departure for Ford than John Book. Definitely. Um, playing Ali Fox, I would say it's the first, not the last, but it's one of the first times we see him kind of in a uh, protagonist slash antagonist role. Um, and that is very, that was very interesting for um, high school David to see, you know, cause I was always, <laughs> cause I was always interested in, okay, what's the next Harrison Ford movie? And I remember buying the book, the Paul Thoreau book. I don't know if I read all of it, uh, but I remember my English teacher at the time knew, knew Paul Schrader because he went to he went to college with him, and he's like, "Oh, Paul Schrader's adapting that." You know, I'm like, "Oh, really? Whoa. You know these things?" And and so I I was obviously really interested, and I think that movie just it really the first time I watched it. Um, I remember I think it was in like Oak Brook Theater or something. Um, of course, both these theories that I'm mentioning are now uh, non-existent. But um, yeah, it, it just really transformed me, you know, in a way because there were some very interesting ideas um, conveyed in Mosquito Coast, and a lot of which you can get on board with and understand. But they were taken to certain degrees. Um, there is this. Um, there, there's a lot of like verses, um, kind of dialogue and, and struggles like, you know, um, capitalism versus whatever the opposite of capitalism is, you know, um, and, and, and uh, of course, religion, nature versus nurture, that sort of nature thing. versus nurture for yeah, sure. Um, religion versus non-religion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, if you look at like, say Andre Gregory's, uh, pastor, um, uh, is it good? Good speed, um, right. yeah. and yeah, and uh, Sorry, got oh, yeah. backwards. Almost kind of backwards. Spellgood, Reverend Spellgood, um, and Ali Fox. I mean, they are both passionate, knowledgeable men. It's always interesting to see these movies where the main character knows more Bible than the preacher in the movie. Um, it's kind of kind of funny, um, but yeah, it. This movie, looking at it now, it it definitely um, you could see with this being the second movie that Ford and Weir made, 
you could see how, how well they connected and they're working together. Um, I think that was one of the reasons why um, Ford wasn't uh, present when he was nominated for an Oscar. He wasn't there at the telecast. He wasn't there at the awards ceremony because they were busy making this film. Yeah, they sort um, of just went right to it. Pretty much. Right to it. And that makes sense. Um, I love, again, this is another you know great cast. I mean, um, Ford and River Phoenix. I mean, come on. Um, you could really tell how well they work together. You could, you could tell, like, you know, they famously worked, uh, got along so great off screen. Ford was so impressed with Phoenix that, you know, he handpicked him to be young in the Anna Jones and last crusade. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could see like, uh, man, I really miss Phoenix, but you you could see, yeah, you could see how even in, Mosquito Coast, you could see how Phoenix was starting to kind of like be Ford's character's son, you know, and you could see how even in Last Crusade, he was really uh, emanating Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Like he was actually being a young Indiana Jones as, as much as, you know, Ewan McGregor was being a young Alec Guinness in Star Wars. Um, it was just such a good job. And you, you pick that up in Mosquito Coast by how well they work together and, and work off each other. Um, and then, you know, I, I think this is probably maybe outside of Excalibur, Excalibur, my first introduction to Helen Mirren. And she was just so good in this. Um, I, I, I like what Weird does with, um, and again, he's teaming with John Seal here. I like what he does with um, how he treats I guess both the women in this film or, or both women in, in both these films, Kelly McGillis and Helen Mirren, um, they're not pushovers. They're not just slight, you know, supporting characters. Um, she, Helen doesn't Mirren, seem like, she doesn't seem like she has as much agency until no. a breaking point, you know? Well, that's the thing is like, you could tell like, like she, they don't even give her a name. She's just yeah, mother, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, she's, definitely a devoted supporter of her husband and his inventions and his, uh, uh, drive and his motivations, his ideals. And they're, you know, she's busy raising, you know, two boys and two twin girls, um, on a farm, no less, you know? And so then when they go to something even more primitive, you know, she's, she's pretty busy. Uh, but Mm -hmm. I think, I think after like, the second half of the movie where things definitely, you know, turn darker, uh, once they're in, uh, Moschidia, um, you, the camera, a lot of times as, as Ali Fox goes darker and becomes more, you know, uh, kind of manic. It becomes um, more erratic, I think. Yeah. Erratic. Yeah. Um, you see, the camera like resting on, on her and just how mm. concerned concerned she's getting and how exasperated she's getting and how uh, there's this internal struggle. You know, do I support this man I love or do I protect my family? <laughs> you know, it's like, do I, you know, take care of my family or, or I, I'm not agreeing with what he's saying. And I usually don't vocalize in front of the family that I don't agree, but this is, 
this is a different situation altogether right now. Um, yeah, and and seeing seeing through the eyes of you know others is is an is an apparent theme throughout his work, and and you know the idea of breaking free of familiar confines, like you know he sees he sees he sees America as you know turning into this awful awful place, almost almost. An, to parallel like Ed Harris's character in Truman show is like, you know, the, the world is this terrible, terrible place, but look what I've created for you, you know? And like, and just like that, that, that sense of ego will eventually eat away at you because nature yeah. is inevitable. <laughs> that's know? interesting that you compare those two characters. That's pretty spot on. Um, yeah. There, it's really, it's it's hard to watch this performance because you are, you you kind of understand where he's coming from, but then yeah. you're like, oh no no, you're going too far. This is too much. Especially and even early the way on he, with his you yeah. know with his tirades and his like, like to me like oh god that's pure Paul Schrader like railing against you know just the, the norms and the conventions and all the things that right. have gone wrong. And it's like mm-hmm. now more than ever you watch this movie. You kind of go, yeah, America's kind of falling apart. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it was, it was falling apart then; it's falling apart now. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But it's like you sort of sense, you know, Ali's idealism. You know, it's not going to work out. Like you kind of, right. you kind of admire somebody like this that can build a like a giant ice maker. You know, right, right, and, 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 and you know, in a in a less fortunate Central America, you know, country or village that could use something like this. And, you know, even, even he feels like, my God, this is going to be something that will change everybody's lives here. And people need this stuff. And, you know, and I like that kind of idealism is, is obviously very attractive. You understand why, um, you know, River Phoenix as the son idealizes his dad because right. you know he's not just a dreamer; he's a doer. <laughs> he is. He's a doer, and he's often um, misunderstood um, mm-hmm. and brushed over uh, by his employer. Um, there's, but there's also this. You could tell uh, River Phoenix's uh, character Charlie. You could tell that Charlie notices that there is something underneath his father's skin. That's something to be concerned about and maybe, uh, fearful for not necessarily fearful of, but, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that he's like, he's like, you know, look around you, Charlie, this place is a toilet, you know, uh, have a Coke, watch TV. How did America get this way? Um, I like what, you know, how Ford is delivering those lines and, and, you know, I like his performance there and it's interesting, interesting to see, um, how, you know, dark his character, you know, gets, but also while either denying certain things that are obviously around him or just, um, you know, persevering and pursuing what, what his vision is, uh, yet at the cost of who and what, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I just wonder if he hadn't chose to kill those, uh, 
the mercenaries. Mercenaries, right. Yeah. And what would, how would things would have turned out, you know, because like, I almost yeah. feel like that's, that's the turning point, you know, like making that decision, maybe in the eyes of nature or God or the universe just said, well, you're, you're you've gone too far. And this is, this is going to be the, you know, the point of no return and you've completely lost it. And now you're going to pay the price by, well, right. your, your, your beautiful creation is going to be no more. And right. And, and that, right. that, that whole sequence is Man. one of my favorites in, in all of Weir's films is just watching that slowly escalate out of control and seeing his eyes and uh. re- reflected in like, this beautiful thing I've created is, is gone. And, right. and yet at the same time you wake up the next morning is like, Nope, that was a good thing. Now we can start all over again. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like, Oh no, Allie. Yeah. Right. And yeah, then it all, then it all goes downhill from there. Um, yeah. It sort it, of becomes it, a little Lord of the flies to kinda, some degree, you know, just like, yeah. okay, you know, just like how are we going to survive right <laughs> here? You know, it's some, like, Not sure. Yeah. Like Swiss family Robinson style. Uh, right. but, you know, it's 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 really just about like, you know, personalities are going to clash, cultures are going to clash. Like he's not even, I just I, once he gets to the point of being so stubborn that he's not even willing to accept any help, is especially when you have a family to take mm-hmm. care of. Is it, that's when I lose all respect for him, and I th- I think that's kind of the intent anyway to sort of show yeah. Like this misguided white male idealism is, you know, and is, he's basically oh. a stubborn dude. And oh, for sure, for sure. And it is again. That's why it's such an intriguing role for Ford at this time in his career. It's it's so uh, hard to stay with this character because yeah. of the way he's treating his family and and others. Um, you see it, um, you know, gradually. But there's that moment where they're trying to bring ice to those villagers that are deep, deep into the, into the jungle. Right. Right. And, and you know, his two sons are tired and, and the other guys that are helping him are tired and everything. And he's like, well, we're going to keep on going, you know? And the way that he just kind of bites into um, his sons is just so hard to watch, but there's that quick moment where we see that, you know, Allie is regretful of what he just said. You know, and so I, I think he's he's aware of uh, his his fallibility and his uh, his sin. You know, uh, you know towards his sons, and it's it's hard for him to admit that and see that. Um, and uh, those are you know it's it's those smaller moments, those little moments that really you know make this uh, a great you know character study, a great piece. Um. It is also also interesting uh, the bits of humor that are injected into this movie, uh, especially early on when when we um, see them board the, the the ship that they're taking from Baltimore down to uh, uh, I guess Central America in the Belize area, um, where they meet the Stelgid family, especially okay. with uh, Mar- Martha Plimpton. You know, I think of you when I go to the bathroom, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> That that stuff was great. I was I was watching this with uh, my daughter and my wife, and my daughter just looked at me like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite a line. I'm like I'm like, please don't ever use a line like that. On somebody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's 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 uh 
it's funny that a family like the Foxes wind up on a ship with a family like the Spelgans, who are missionaries going back to their church with their, you know, their, their, you know, he's pretty much a televangelist uh, in a way. And he's promoting his new blue jean Bible with a denim cover. It's just so funny. Yeah. Um, oh, and you also, you mentioned, you mentioned Martha Plimpton and it's just funny that, uh, another one of my favorite movies, uh, and it's kind of like an outlier in Sidney Lumet's filmography. But oh, running on empty. empty. Talk about another oh, mo- another movie mm. about like learning that your parents are fallible and mm. just you, you shouldn't romanticize them and think of them as you know these godlike figures in your in your own head because you're you're bound to be disappointed. And again, you have River Phoenix and Martha Plimpton having a connection in that movie too. It's right. kind of interesting right. how that sort of developed. Um, right. But I no, think, I, um, I think it's, this one is just, I, I, the more I see it too, the more it really, it really gets to me. And I, I can't imagine, you know, you're a parent <laughs> mm. <laughs> watching this movie must like, I don't know, really get under your skin. Well, it's interesting too, because especially when I watch this, um, I think one of the reasons, and I just, it just really dawned on me tonight before I started, you know, as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about in this movie, I think that when I first saw this movie, it became so personal because my own relationship with my father started to get really fractured around mm-hmm. that time. And, you know, my, my parents had separated probably a couple of years before then I was learning some things about my dad that looked to say weren't too flattering. And, and we were kind of had a, I don't know if, uh, our relationship was just pretty much fractured. And so I was, it was really interesting to see this movie being narrated by somebody who was essentially my age talking about their father, who was looking up to his father, but also critiquing his father and talking about how his father was perceived by others, the great things his father was doing, but also where at the end, when you hear his narration, it's in a different state it's a different tone yeah, um for sure so i think i think that really connected with me and i i guess i'm just now realizing it um so it's interesting that i watched that movie at that time in my life and then it became this it became one of my favorite performances by ford um and it actually is um he has gone on record saying this is his favorite movie that he's done um which is you know not too surprising, I think. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And mm-hmm. it makes, it, it, it gives me hope that, you know, more people will go back and, and discover it in, in the same way that even recently, uh, I forgot where, but Christian Slater just, I think within the past week or so mentioned that his favorite performance was uh, pump up the volume. And that's, well, a, that's, yeah. that's a movie that changed my life. Actually. <laughs> I remember, I remember listening to your conversation, your interview with, uh, Samantha, Mathis. Mathis, yeah. I wanted to say Morton, but that's somebody else. Uh, yeah, Samantha Mathis, and uh, that was a great interview you had with her. Um, yeah, I remember really connecting with that movie, too. Um, yeah, especially around that time when, when you're mm-hmm. an angst-ridden teenager and right, you don't think right. anybody gets you. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's why, I mean, even at the time, I, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of older movies when I was a teenager, but I'd seen Rebel Without a Cause, and to me... Ah. Pump up the volume felt like, oh, this is my generation's rebel without a cause. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. It definitely wanted it definitely wanted me. I wanted to uh sit in front of a microphone shirtless, 
you know, talking to the world. Well, what do you think um, I'm doing right now? <laughs> I was like, isn't that what we're doing right now? Here we are, full circle. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's probably the. Uh, I, I probably have said that in uh, in when I've interviewed people, but that's that's yeah. I think some of the volume is probably responsible for podcasts. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sure we're not alone in saying that. Yeah, um, but going back to uh, Weir. Um, yeah. Let's just, you know, sort of uh, t- talk about, because, I mean, cl- clearly we love mm-hmm. the majority of, of his work. And uh, right. there's a couple of other titles I think we, we need to mention here, because... Uh, sure. Um, uh, which, what, which one would you like to highlight first? Because obviously I'm, I'm torn, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, I think we covered Fearless at length earlier on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and something like Picnic at, Hang- Picnic at Hanging Rock needs a little bit more... Uh, love and I know you just it's own, it. it's own episode you mean <laughs> probably let's just do a part um, three let's just schedule well, it for, for next year <laughs> there you go um, I, I, I would like to say before we look at any of his other films yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you do you do mention going back and catching up with Mosquito Coast I think the frustrating thing is I think you could stream it I think you could rent it or something but this is a movie and well, I mean, Witness is on Blu-ray, but this is a movie that needs to be like on Blu-ray. Keanu Lorber needs to pick it up or something. We need, we need something. I have a DVD of this, and it's one of those early DVDs where one side is widescreen and one side is standard. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> no. so, yeah, so it's like, come on, we need you know a, a good transfer, a good copy with some you know. I don't know if there's any special features, but something. I mean, this movie deserves. Like you said, a wider audience now, but um, we, we need to preserve it in some way and let's get a nice digital transfer or something. Um, anyway. I agree. All right. um, yeah. So as far as other films, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I recently, um, knowing that we were going to talk about Weir's films, I, I knew that there was some blind spots and uh, being curious um, that Prior to his, let's say, double feature of Harrison Ford films, his previous two movies were double features of Mel Gibson in starring roles in his in his previous films of uh, uh, being Gallipoli, uh, 1981, and Year of Living Dangerously, uh, 82. So I had never seen those movies in their entirety. I've seen bits, so I watched those. I also went back and watched, uh, well, not went back, but for the first time, finally caught up with the picnic at Hanging Rock uh, this week. Um, so I thought all those movies were really good. I think probably outside of maybe Witness and Truman Show, um, probably Weir's most popular film would be Dead Poets Society. Um, yeah. And, and we could talk about that. I'm, I'm open, whatever you want to talk about. Well, it's funny because, like... Um after Mosquito Coast, I think there's a couple of movies before my absolute favorite that I'm not that high up on. Um, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who's on record as defending Green Card as essential <laughs> weir, but I mean, if if you're a fan of Dead Poet Society, that's totally fine. I mean, I don't mind, I, but it's at the same time like I, I, I like wacky Robin Williams sometimes doing what he does as a teacher in that film does great on my nerves sometimes. Uh, I hear you. Uh, so yeah. it's like, I could take like manic Robin Williams in small doses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's, that's a movie that 
I remember I, I watched it with my parents. We rented it, you know, and I think it was up for all these Academy Award nominations. And you know, I was a fan of of, of poetry, and and certainly mm-hmm. uh, the, the cast here is really strong. I, I I was just really surprised that I didn't get as emotional as I kind of thought I would by uh-huh. how thing by how things play out and. Uh, it, it's it's one that has always been more middle of the road for me. Like I know people who can't stand it. I know people who love it, and I'm square in the middle. As, fi- as th- seeing things about it that I still really like, and things about it that kind of drive me bonkers. Yeah, um, I, I think I'm somewhere in between, like liking it and loving it, because I think it hit a sweet spot for me. Being um, you know, 1989 was such a good year for movies for me and music um, that. Um, I, I really, uh, I really latched onto it because it's so, it was something that I could relate to. Where, yeah, for sure. Uh, when I when I when I couldn't get the uh, father figure in my life that I needed, I think I looked to the teachers in my life, and yeah. Uh, so I, I've always been, as far as a sweet spot, I've always been kind of a sucker for good teacher movies. Um, and Nothing wrong I with think, that. Yeah, so I think that this was. Again, John Seals' cinematography, Maurice Wari's uh, soundtrack, and and Peter Weir's you know direction. I think this was uh, if if people only knew you know Robin Williams for let's say Morgan Mindy or whatever, um, <laughs> I would I would like to show them you know something like this because um, uh, I think that this was probably one of his first uh, another you know actor making a departure. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. Um, there was another. Right? I mean, there was another. Uh, good morning, or, or, Vietnam. I think it was right. You know, okay. Barry Levinson's "Good Morning Vietnam" might have been a year before this. I think so. Right. But even then, I think it. Yeah, I mean, both of these movies are interesting. Both of those movies are interesting because they they do have a little bit of the Robin Williams manicness, but also mm-hmm. uh, there's some there's some heavy hitting serious you know themes there. Um, so I think that uh, those were back to back. Yeah. Um, it might've been like 87, 89, but, um, I think as far as Weir's biggest endeavor, um, I mean, without a doubt, master and commander. Um, I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy that that movie was made. Like I I marvel (laughs) at it. You know, I, I just, yeah, it, it, it's funny because you never think of, like, up until then, I never thought of Peter Weir as, like, like an action director or, an, or a, you know, epic, you know, movie direct, you know, and a movie and of epic proportions type of director. But this movie does feel like a Peter Weir film. Oh, it absolutely you know? does. And, yeah. and again, like, maybe... It could it could fall under the the umbrella of like a you know a, a, a an epic blockbuster with a lot mm-hmm. of action and but at the same time you, again you do care about what happens and it's just so beautifully done. Oh my god! I yeah. kind of watch it's... it and go again. You know, almost similar to Witness. Like everything here just works and flows to where you know if. If there was ever like a, a franchise I would possibly get excited about, because I never got into the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or anything, um, mm-hmm. you know, some people did. That's fine, but uh, <laughs> I, I 
this was like this was my pirates. <laughs> this was my this was the kind of yeah. like I want more of this. If if Peter Weir is on board to you know continue down this road, that'd be great. But um, you know his last film also just it, it's weird how that was kind of just swept under the rug and like it was one of those that was in limbo with the awards screeners. I remember like, Colin was talking about back. that. Uh, it's just like, yeah, the way, the, the way back, yeah. it was yeah. just kind of like shrugged off. Um, yeah. And it's weird yeah. because it, again, it's like him check, like tackling the idea of a journey uh, mm-hmm. and just like covering all this, all these different terrains and environments and how are they going to survive this? And how are these people going to, you know, overcome this, you know, uh, weather change and like just you kind of watch that movie and go, how the heck did he film all these different locations? And right. And yeah. Like, and it's just astonishing to watch. It um, is. It is. It's, and it's again, got a, a crazy strong cast. Um, you know, Ed Harris, he returned, he reunites with Ed Harris. You got Jim Sturgis, Colin Farrell, uh, a young Saoirse Ronan, Mark Strong. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's, a lot going on in this movie, and, and the fact that it's based on a true story is is absolutely fascinating. A um, supposed true story that right. has kind of interest, like an interesting history, and in that nobody can, some people confirm it, and some people deny it, and some people are like, that would have been impossible. But yet, some people say that it that a couple people survived and actually did live to tell the tale. So, right, it's interesting. Yeah, because I because I think it's pretty much inspired by a memoir. And of course a memoir is one, one person's perspective on the whole situation. Um, I, I think what was interesting to me about, you know, preparing for our talk was, um, looking at the differences or, or I guess trying to identify the differences between his early Australian films and the American films. Now I didn't catch up with the last wave. I plan on it. Uh, but watching Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, I was really impressed with how, um, you know, kind of dreamy and artful it is. Um, and you, Witness was his first American film. Mm-hmm. And, and you could see him kind of slowly kind of going away from that kind of dreamy, artful approach Uh Obviously, his movies are still great to look at, and they're captivating and everything. But you know, this—we uh, talk about based on a true story. This is a picnic at Hang Rock is also based on a true story, and you could almost see that it's—you know—maybe uh, kind of embellished for dramatic purposes here and there because you only know so much of what's happened in the story. Right. right. And um, you know, so it's interesting to see where he goes from, you know, picking at Hanging Rock, um, his first big Australian film, um, to, you know, witness. Um, and I, I was, you know, very much captivated by, uh, and, and intrigued by what was happening in the story, um, about these three students and a, a school teacher, uh, who disappear on an excursion on Valentine's day in 1900 in, uh, Victoria, uh, Australia. Um, that, I mean, it's, it's very interesting. I would love to, I plan on reading up a lot more on what, uh, compelled we to make a, a movie 
what intrigued him about that story. Um, did uh, you, you have obviously seen picking a hang rock before. I mean, I recently saw it for the first time. What were your thoughts on it? Well, let, so two of my favorite filmmakers are David Lynch and Sofia Coppola. Uh, oh, okay. Wow. And really, I feel like Picnic and Hanging Rock sometimes feels like, especially again, in terms of sound design, almost like a horror movie, almost like a David Lynch movie, because mm-hmm. it really focuses just on characters in, in uh, like a really trepidatious environment that you don't know what, where, where it's going to go, how they're going to get lost, how things are going to play out. It's not all spelled out for you. It's very ambiguous. Uh, and yet like, you know, as much as he captures the horror of kind of like the daylight, uh, <laughs> being out in the, in, you know, in, in nature, almost like, you know, when you think of, uh, something like midsummer <laughs> where it's like, right. Oh my God, the daylight is terrifying suddenly. Right. Uh, but there's also this like sort of dreamlike idyllic, uh, beautific capturing of young women in the same way, like Sofia Coppola did with Virgin suicides, where it is, it is incredibly dreamlike and beautiful, but also very overwhelming at times. Uh, and I'm totally fine with this mystery not being solved just because, you know, similarly to like the Zodiac killer, it really wasn't ever resolved. So, we're, I'm not anticipating like uh, an ending where we figure out how how things played out or whatever because sometimes people disappear uh-huh. and we we never know why or, or how and it's to me like kind of a work of art uh, and oh it is and and, the, and yeah. both both the last wave and picnic and hanging rock I feel I, like they they sort of invade my subconscious because they're mm. they they view nature as this destructive force that if you're coming into it looking to, I don't know if necessarily conquer it's the right way to put it, but if you're not interested in having a healthy relationship with nature, then you're doomed. Uh, right. Like yeah. you know, the, the Aborigines, you know, it, they, they, they believe the planet itself is alive and that nature is alive and it's something that we should have harmony with. Um, and if, if you're not at peace with it or, you start becoming a destroyer, then, you know, karma's going to catch up with you. And I'm not saying like th- what happens to these girls, you know, that that's necessarily the intent. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's still like some hidden uh, message of loss of innocence again. I, I mean, I think that's kind of hinted at is like, they're slowly developing into, you know, uh, sexual creatures potentially. And do they get lost do they get completely swallowed up by these rocks? I don't know. It's it's kind of one of those movies that because nothing is really spelled out for you or things get really weird with that headmistress later on. Um, right. I, I, yeah. I it, 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 it feels like a, it feels like a dream in that I can't fully pinpoint exactly what it's about or what it's trying to say at all times. But that experience in of itself is invigorating. Have you watched the Amazon miniseries? I haven't, but I should. I'm okay. curious as yeah. how they can sort of I, uh, re-envision the story. I think there's room for um, expanding the story. Yeah. Um, there's because there's, there's that inclusion of uh, the the girl. I think it, I think it's Rachel or whoever is is left 
yes. back at the uh, she's the orphan who's left back at the uh, the boarding school. Which I'm not 100 percent clear why the film kind of ends with this possible murder of her by the headmistress. Like that's kind of hinted at, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's kind of hinted at. Um, I found it interesting that she talks about being separated from her brother yet. We're also meeting her brother. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, a mini series like that would expand on that a little bit and provide some more backstory or maybe, uh, maybe the book that it's based on, Actually, does the book actually connect these siblings eventually Mm -hmm. or something? Um, I thought that that was really intriguing. Uh, Obviously, something predictable would be for the the screenwriter to reunite these characters, um, you know, long lost siblings. But I'm I'm glad that didn't happen because it just kind of this movie is all about like these, you know, kind of dangling question marks and unsolved things in life, you know, um, the fact that these siblings are no longer together, yet they're uh, in proximity, very close geographically, yet they don't know it. And, you know, there's that kind of mystery. And the fact that these, you know, four characters disappear and only one shows up again is is very interesting, too. Like the the headmistress even said, you know, you know, I think one of her um, uh, co-workers or colleagues, direct reports, if you will, said, you know, aren't you, aren't you happy? Isn't this great? She's like, no, it's worse. Only one shows up and it, she makes sense. You know, that that's understandable. It's like the fact that one person showed up after four people are missing is, is even more mysterious. You know, why, you know, why is this happening? And I, I do like the scene when, um, I forget the character's name when the surviving girl comes back after kind of recovering and she comes back and, and, and is kind of reintroduced back to the, to the, the rest of the students, the girls. And there's that crazy kind of, um, you know, uh, ex- excited scene where all the girls just kind of want to know what's going on. Like, why did it work? What happened? What, 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 what went on? What, what's going on? You know? Um, and everybody was just kind of in get, gets hysterical, hysterical. Um, I, I really liked the way that scene was, uh, played out and filmed. Um, again, almost like midsummer <laughs> like they yeah. all sort of surround yeah. her and like, you know, it's right. like overwhelming. I, I find the movie kind of overwhelming in a really interesting way. Like, again, it's about the why it's about the ambiguity right. of it all. And, I, I I find that experience breathtaking. It's kind of the ultimate, though, uh, when I think about it. It's the anti-my-mom movie because my mom can't stand movies where you don't find out what happens. Well, yeah. Like, if there's no closure, she gets really upset. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> Whereas I I'm like, I love it because I get to think about it more. You get to think about it, yeah. And it's, it's, it's dreamy. It's kind of trippy in its own right. Um, I was reading... Um, Ebert's 98 uh, review because I think it came out it was re-released after um, weird uh, had released a director's cut which I think shaved off about seven minutes um, but um, in his review he includes this quote from uh, Weir uh, who told an interviewer for Sight and Sound he said we work very hard 
at creating a hallucinatory uh, mes- mesmeric rhythm. Yeah. Uh, so that you lost awareness of facts, you stopped adding things up and got into this enclosed atmosphere. I did everything in my power to hypnotize the audience away from the possibility of solutions. Well, there you go. That And it works. It totally yeah. works on that level. Totally works. Yeah. And I think that may have been, may, may answer my question right there about what drew him to this story. Um, what to him made this news story um, cinematic. And um, I think we see that there by how he describes his approach and his, as you just mentioned, his, his approach is very successful. Um, it's, it's funny. You mentioned to me um, that this is kind of similar to Nicholas Rogue's walkabout. Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah. No, it's and, again, Australian filmmaker that I love. Yeah, And you know, um, Ebert mentioned that, you know, that touches on some of the same feelings as Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, yeah, I, I would, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I am, I'm almost at times surprised that not enough people talk about Peter Weir's films. Um, but I'm almost kind of glad because then we can talk about it and introduce people to his movies or just kind of have people, revisit these movies because these are great movies to either be introduced to or revisit. Yeah. And they're great movies to talk about with somebody afterwards because not not every little thing is spelled out and you, you have questions, but it's not like it in like, Oh, that was unresolved. And that, you know, that's kind of an error in the storytelling or whatever. Not in that, not in that way at all. And um, as most people know, especially if they listened to the earlier uh, episode that we did. Um, Fearless to me is kind of a, one of those movies that I, I, I can't, I can't criticize. And when I see like other people not calling it a masterpiece, like it doesn't compute in my brain <laughs> because I have such a personal response to what takes place in it. Um, mm-hmm. Having had a very rare disease and, you know, doctors were telling me in the hospital that I wasn't going to make it and sort of being faced with your own mortality and having pretty near death experience, uh, under surgery. But at the same time, I know what this feeling is like that Jeff Bridges experiences, um, as, uh, as Max in fearless. Like I just like that, that emotion from the get go, from the very beginning, like this sort of, detachment that you have um, as a result of experiencing something incredibly shocking. And mm-hmm. that, that whole feeling per- permeates the film in addition to being one of the best representations of a panic attack that, you know, like he has oh, yeah. when he thinks he's sort of re- regressing back to the old max that, you know, he's trying to forget. Right. Uh, and yeah, like the, the, and again, you watch that movie, it starts off. Like a horror movie. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's remarkable. again, we talk about, yeah, again, we talked, you talked about uh, early on, you talked about sound design, the sound design in this movie. Just crazy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost other weirdly, uh, or other worldly, sorry. Other weirdly, maybe. Other, other weirdly. There you go. Uh, but kind of like 
some of the sounds that show up in Picnic at Hanging Rock. I mean, in this mm-hmm. movie and in the opening scenes, like they say, like the first ten minutes or so, there's just sounds that are kind of they're kind of the sounds that maybe haunt you and you don't know where they're coming from or what, what the origin is. Um, and, um, they, they seem so real yet. Um, again, from, from a different time and place. Um, yeah, I think I remember seeing fearless, um, in the theaters. And I remember it was one of those movies that I had to see after reading Everett's four star review. Um, and I was just, okay, well, obviously I need to see this movie, <laughs> you know, because it was just, it was one of those reviews that I was just like this, I'm sold. I need to see this movie. And of course, it's interesting seeing a movie like this. You're reminded of, again, what Weir can do with a, uh, an actor, but obviously we, we've seen Jeff Bridges in movies prior to this. But I would, it seems cliche to say, but I don't think I've ever seen him like this. No, it's my favorite, it's my favorite performance maybe ever by any actor. Uh, I know, yeah. I, I know I'm prone to hyperbole sometimes, but I, I sort of stand by like, this is, you know, I, I still can't get, I can't get over the fact that, you know, he didn't, I, I mean, obviously, it, of course, Rosie Perez is remarkable in this movie and in a way that mm-hmm. we've never seen before and she deserved all the nominations but the the, mm-hmm. the fact that Jeff Bridges wasn't recognized for this and should have won um I mean I'm sure there were other great performances in 1993 but uh, yeah I, I I just can't get over how he does every little thing right in 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 ways that still surprise me when I watch it and mm-hmm. uh it's it's I mean it, it's the ultimate experience and empathy in in a way that uh, I, I think I, I, I can't even contain my emotions at the end of this movie. <laughs> and I think people well, find the ending a little manipulative or a little hokey. And yes, the score is being raised, uh-huh. but I, I think it's because I have so much invested in this character and I understand what he's going through to a degree uh, that it, like, I just sort of go, you know, I don't, I don't care. Like, that you know, some people, and I know you and Colin aren't 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 these people that I know who despise you too, and <laughs> think that they're they're you know full of themselves and just you know not not a great band. But I I I cannot get over that sequence when that song mm-hmm. starts playing, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't even hear Bono at all. It's just the intro to the song. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that's that's all that's needed. Um, exactly. I definitely, I, I meant to revisit this. I, I definitely want to go back and, and watch it. And, you know, as you stated in the beginning, sometimes you watch things with new eyes. Yeah. And it, it's not just that. It's also like watching watching a movie after you've watched so many other movies since the first time you watched it. Um, and it because you're on this, you know, steady diet of film consumption, you learn so much. And I, I think you wind up appreciating a movie you already liked even more because you've watched all these other movies and it, and it helps build your knowledge of filmmaking and, and film language. Um, so I definitely want to go back and, and watch this. I have to, I just looked this up. I have to correct myself. Ebert gave this movie three stars, not four. 
his error. That's okay. Oh, well, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I, when I see on Letterboxd people not giving this a high rating, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. maybe they didn't have mm-hmm. the same experience that I had to this film, and that's fine, but uh, I, I just, it's it's one of those movies to me that, like, I can't imagine people not being emotional yeah. watching it. Uh, just because yeah, I yeah. am so much, and I know other oh, yeah. people, I know, you know, uh, certainly Nick DiGiulio or, or Colin, and, mm-hmm. you know, just, the, th- there's something about this movie, similarly, like, yeah, like Picnic and Hanging Rock, where it's like, I don't know why it, it, it I'm so enveloped by it, I just know that my emotional response is, oh my God, this is something, this is something else that I can't even put my finger on. It's just, it works and that's all you can say. (laughs) Well, it hit, it hits on so many themes, guilt, regret, uh, grief, survive, you know, there's survivor's guilt, you know, but PTSD and, uh, empathy. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, I, I'm. It's one of those movies that I'm just kind of like excited to introduce to you know my daughter and, and you know I have her look at. Hey, look what this movie's doing. Um, yeah, it's life affirming. It really uh, is. It's, it is, um, and in a challenging way. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think you know I'm. I don't know about you, but I I, I still am, and I I grew up um, as a, a soundtrack geek and. Um, you know, both Witness and Mosquito Coast had great soundtracks by Maurice Waré. Um, but um, but this this soundtrack I remember buying, and it's, I mean, you got, I think it's Cronus Quartet and a, a bunch of other um, Gypsy Kings, obviously, in that, you know, <laughs> scene on the road. Uh, but, yeah, there, there's, it's a very engaging uh, soundtrack and a lot of it is, um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, you have uh, the soprano Don Upshaw and Symphony Number no. Three. Um, it's just, yeah, pretty riveting soundtrack and it's kind of all over the place too, but very, um, transport, um, uh, music. And yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about Peter Weir's Me too. films just because um, I'm, I obviously didn't, I wasn't able to revisit all of his films and there's still a couple of blind spots. Like I don't think I ever saw, I know that it's his lesser film, but I never saw green card all the way through and I, and I haven't seen uh, um, the one with uh, Richard Chamberlain. Definitely yeah. got to see the last wave. You definitely last wave. Yeah, last wave. Got to see that. Um, so we usually end the podcast though with uh, mm-hmm. with, with revealing our top three films, you know, by the director that we've seen, obviously. Ah, so okay. I mean, I'll go first, even though this is yeah. this is this is really tough because it is. You know, a lot of the titles we've we've mentioned can all be up there, but you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've I'm going to go with uh, you know sticking with with fearless as my number one for obvious reasons. And most people know why. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think this has changed since the, uh, the last episode we did on Peter Weir, but number two, I, uh, you know, picnic at hanging rock is something that the more I watch again, the more it kind of invades me. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think about it quite a bit. And it's something that I, I, I look forward to reading the book and, uh, 
watching some of the extras on the Criterion disc soon enough. And the, and the miniseries. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And um, uh, number, th- I, number three for me is uh, Mosquito Coast, which, okay. yeah, I just, I, I, again, the more I watch that one, the more I respond to it. And it is uh, my favorite Harrison Ford performance. Awesome. Yeah, I think um, my list is similar, just ordered differently. Uh, number one would be uh, Mosquito Coast. Um, number two, um, Fearless. And three, Picnic at Hang Rock. Um, and I think the one and two is, is you know, mainly because of the... Uh, the potency, the emotional potency of, of what both of those movies provide. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks man. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. It was, yeah, it was great to be here, man. It was a real pleasure to finally talk with you and, you know, again, to talk about such a tremendous filmmaker and, uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll do it again, you know, next year. We'll, we'll, we'll find, we'll find another filmmaker for you to come on to talk about. It'd be great. That'd be great. I have some ideas. That would be great. Yeah. So where could people go to read more of your work and or follow you? Um, you could follow me when I show up on Twitter sometimes. Uh, David J. Fowley, F-O-W-L-I-E. Um, my site, Keeping It Real, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, R-E-E-L. Um, I show up there often. You could um, also hear me. I'm a frequent guest on Ian Simmons' podcast. Um, kicking the seat. So that's where you can kind of hear me and read me. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much it. Great. Um, yeah. So thanks everyone for listening and, uh, stay tuned towards the end of July when returning guests, Colin Suter and Eric Childress joined to join me to talk about the latter work of this little known director called Steven Spielberg. I don't know if you've heard of mm-hmm. it. The latter work, huh? Um, well, that's the thing. Is like I, I feel like good things come in trilogies, and mm-hmm. we're doing a part three on on Mr. Spielbergo. Okay, because uh, uh, we we covered his early work, obviously, and then uh, part two we got up to Munich. So interesting. Okay, post so gonna... post Munich stuff is very hit and miss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, it's going to be interesting. I am a huge fan of Lincoln. Uh, and, and, and I know Colin brought up, like, we may not be huge fans of ready player one, but I think it's interesting to talk about. Um, yes, it is. I certainly really like bridge of spies. So there's, there's some, there's some, there's some quality work there. Uh, it'll be an interesting conversation. So until next time, send an email to directors club podcast at gmail.com. Join us at the, uh, at the, at the, at the newly created patreoncom slash directors club and over at Twitter at DC podcast. And of course you can follow me over at letterboxd. Um, I am now playing Jim. So we'll see you in about a month. Please stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, watch over one another, take care and good night. Thanks again, David. Mm-hmm.